I'd like to start off on our course on biblical foundations for all things. First of all, to explain why there's two different titles for the course. If you're a Chafer student, it's titled Biblical Framework 1. So that implies that there's at least another portion to it. And in fact, there's a Biblical Framework 2, which is primarily New Testament. This is Old Testament. And for Noah Webster students, I'm calling it, and this is actually the name that I prefer, the Biblical Foundations for All Things. So just a little quick background. This is a course that a man by the name of Charles Clough, Charlie Clough to those of us that know him, he originated this course. This is a unique course that is not offered anywhere that I know of. And Charlie's a very unique guy, for one thing. Unique training, MIT graduate, background in engineering, into the sciences, and all of that. Uh, he worked with college students and put together this course primarily to help college students deal with the academic area that they're bombarded with in terms of the prevailing worldview. So he originated the course, and a few years ago he taught the course here in Albuquerque on an abbreviated two-week schedule. In other words, he was somewhat abbreviated, and what the students had to do is do more reading than probably the normal class would have done if he had taught the whole course continuously. So this is basically his course... And as I sat into it, I was noticing continuously as he was teaching that it paralleled a lot of my thinking. He had put things together in, in a way that was unique and I really thought was good. And as I observed, for example, we're going to spend a lot of time in the book of Genesis, so I teach the book of Genesis as a course so a lot of the material he was covering from the book of Genesis was pretty much stuff that I teach as well, particularly the early chapters, and we'll look at primarily them in this course because they're foundational for everything else, basically. So I was noticing these parallels in terms of his approach, his conclusions, etc. And I also teach a course that's called Apologetics, which is Defending the Faith. And uh, this course that Charlie put together combines those two areas. In other words, it combines uh, exegesis, or the exposition of the Bible, includes a defense of major issues in those passages. So I was doing the same thing in terms of apologetics, except in a separate course. And another thing that I also kind of paralleled is... All of these passages that we'll be looking at, now we're going to look at every passage, but the passage we'll be looking at, all of them have significant theological implications. And that's what Charlie did. He combined apologetics, exegesis, and theology and put together this course, and also world history. And he didn't emphasize that aspect of it. So I was seeing some parallels there, and I thought, well... I ought to prepare to teach this course as well so we can have it here in Albuquerque. And what I've done is I've added some other things besides what Charlie includes in his course 
And the reason I call it biblical foundations, Charlie doesn't emphasize this aspect, but it's an aspect that I think is so important that uh, that's an aspect that I will emphasize and will deal with that perspective. So that's why we have two different titles, and that's kind of where this course came from. And I've taught it before, so this will be the second time that I've taught it. And I thought it went well the first time, so we'll see if we can even improve on it. So does that make sense? And I'll talk a little bit more about our approach. In fact, on your outline sheet, you'll notice there, be there, the approach of the study, are those four things that we talked about, and I'll bring them out even in more detail. So that's where the difference in the name comes from and the difference in emphasis. What I will be doing is essentially approaching this whole area as Charlie did. He looks at some of the major events of Scripture, exegetes the passages related, draws out the theological implications of those passages, and then defends them in the hostile world which we live in. And that's what we want to do in this course. So we'll do the same thing, and we'll also add this foundational aspect, and we'll talk a little bit more about worldviews and those sort of things, because those are things that I've somewhat added to, to the course. Make sense? Today, we will primarily focus on an introduction, and we won't complete that even in the three hours that we have today or what's left of three hours. <laughs> we'll pick it up next week, and then somewhere in next week's session, we'll get into the first major event, and before we're done here, you'll know what that event actually is. So that's what we want to do today, is just give you an introduction. And personally, I believe that this is one of the most important courses you will take. If you're a full four-year student, I think that it's one of the most important courses you'll take in the whole four years. Noah Webster, I, I would say the same. And if you disagree with that, let me know afterwards and <laughs> take your feedback into account. So I think this is very, very significant for a lot of reasons. Not only from the perspective of a liberal arts student but from the perspective of a student that concentrates on theology, and most important for every believer. In fact, I believe that every believer should be exposed to these things because of the world in which we live in. So let's start off by looking, first of all, in our introduction to the fact of what kind of a world do we live in. And we live in a world that is hostile to Christians. Now, this hostility breaks out in persecution all over the world. The United States is somewhat unique in that we don't experience the same persecution that others in other places experience all over the world. So we are somewhat unique. But there's a different kind of attack upon believers in the culture in which we live in. So, in essence, we primarily experience a hostility that comes in primarily an academic, primarily in a social, sometimes even in a religious, oftentimes, sometimes in a political sense, there is a growing hostility towards you and I as believers. 
And what this course will help you to do is to understand what underlies this hostility. Where does it come from? And how do we deal with it? And what are some things that we can do to help other believers in coping with this hostility? And personally, if the church in general is under persecution, there's no guarantee and there's no reason to believe that we as believers in the United States will escape the similar persecution that other believers experience later on. So this should prepare us, help us to be able to understand what's going on in a broad sense in terms of what God is doing overall in the world And there is a battle, there is a struggle, and it'll put us, put it in a biblical perspective and understand not only where it comes from, but also how to deal with it and understand how to help others to to do the same thing. Just to show a little bit, these are just kind of illustrations of where we're at today in the culture in which we live in, in the United States of America. So here's a quote from the 1850s. This is a description of what our country was like 160, what, five years ago. Uh, This was uh, a quote from the writings of Alexis de Tocqueville. He's a Frenchman, thinker, philosopher, writer, political, uh, what's the word, political scientist, I guess you could say. He says the following. He visited America, was impressed by it, and this is an evaluation of the country in which you live in. He says, there is no country in the whole world in which the Christian religion retains a greater influence over the souls of men than in America. That was true in 1850. Christianity was prominent in this country. He goes on, and there can be no greater proof of its utility, in other words, It has had its impact on the culture, he says, and there can be no greater proof of its utility and of its conformity to human nature. In other words, it understands man's condition than that its influence is most powerfully felt over most enlightened, the most enlightened and free nation of the earth. And what he's basically saying is, People in America have a good understanding of reality, human nature, and it comes from basically the teaching, what he calls religion, but we could probably better describe it as from a biblical perspective. And in the 1850s, the United States was operating primarily from what we would describe today as a biblical world view. And I'm going to talk a little bit about what a worldview is, and by the time you're done with this course, you will hopefully be saturated in a biblical worldview to such an extent that you'll be able to recognize in the world in which we live in other worldviews that are competing and basically winning out the biblical worldview in terms of the culture we live in. So in the 1850s, Actually, well into the 1900s or the 20th century, people accepted, in essence, the biblical worldview. So we'll talk about what is that biblical worldview. I'll describe it. That didn't mean that everybody was a believer. That doesn't mean that every Christian agreed. There were denominations and differences. There was Catholicism. There was Protestantism and all of the denominations. It didn't mean that there was unity in terms of theology. 
But in terms of an overall worldview, everyone accepted the major elements of that worldview and believed that that was the truth. Things began to subtly change, uh, probably even before the 1850s, such that what we find today, the same writer, Tocqueville, says the following, and he was something of a prophet in this quote in the same book. He says, the American Republic will endure until the day Congress discovers that it can bribe the public with the public's money. And that's where we're at today. And if you listen to the State of the Union speech last night and other things that Obama has said, basically he is bribing the American voter in order to gain not so much votes anymore, but popularity, support for the party, and the ideology that he supports. We're past this point already. And the prophecy that he makes here is the American Republic will endure until that time. The implication is, is things can come crashing down. This is where we're at today. And what we are experiencing, and some of you that are younger have not seen all of this in your lifetime, and some of us that are a little bit more mature, I guess is a better word. (laughs) Mature in age, at least. No promises about other maturity. But we, I've seen in my lifetime a definite change in the culture in which we live in. And essentially what we have observed are attacks on truth. This is kind of the bottom line. And when we talk more about a worldview, we're going to see that what you believe, in other words, what your perception of reality is, that's a worldview, whatever you envision in your thinking concerning what reality is all about, that will work itself out in the way that you live. In other words, it will work itself out. And we see it vividly worked out and lived out in the culture in which we live in. And I'm just going to give you a few examples of some of the major areas where truth is under attack. We're going to spend a lot of time in this course talking about truth. In other words, what is the truth? What is reality? And obviously the bottom line is we believe it's what we find in Scripture. And we're going to spend most of our time in Scripture. But we're going to use the Scriptures, this truth, to contrast, that's where apologetics comes in, to contrast the thinking and the worldview of the culture in which we find ourselves in and the culture that we have to live in. So here are just some of the attacks that you can see. One of the main areas is what's called secular humanism. This is an entire approach or an entire worldview that is diametrically opposed to the biblical worldview. And it's because that this is the predominant worldview of the culture in which we live in. That is an underlying reason why we have a conflict with a lot of the ideas and, frankly, a lot of people within the culture in which we live in. They think differently. They approach life differently. They have a different mindset. They are seeing things differently from the way that we are seeing things if we are, in fact, steeped in Scripture. And this is the predominant worldview of today. Secular humanism dominates the school system, public school system, That's one of the reasons a lot of Christians have chosen to homeschool or to send children to Christian schools. 
is because the dominant, you could say religion, but worldview of the public schools is secular humanism. It also dominates virtually all of uh, the secular colleges and universities. This is just the fact. In other words, everything that is taught in the universities comes through the filter of secular humanism. So that's what we want to do. We want to see what that thinking is in contrast to what we believe reality is all about. And that's we're going to concentrate more on the reality, but we'll, in apologetic way, bring out these others as well. So we have secular humanism dominating our culture, not only the university and high school scene, but every other area as well, politics as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, public schools from schools from grade one all the way through. Yep. In fact, even before grade one. Good. Another influence that you might not think much about in our culture is Marxism. Marxism. You might say, well, that seems to be Soviet Union, that seems to be China. But our government today is headed by an administration that is predominantly believes in this worldview. It doesn't state it overtly, but it states it basically in fundamental principles. It's a Marxist worldview. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time in each of these, but we'll encounter them as we go through the truth. This is the politics that dominates the world, however. Every socialist country, and by the way, Europe is predominantly socialistic. So it's not just the Russias, it's not just the Chinas, it's not just the North Koreans. Most politicians in the world have a Marxist leaning. And if that's not enough, even in America, a survey was carried on by U.S. News and World Report in 1982. So this is way old. And they counted 10,000 Marxist professors in colleges in the United States. So if that was the case back then, things have only deteriorated further. I don't know what the number is today. And most of the universities, a lot of professors, have a Marxist worldview that this is what they teach in things like sociology, psychology, all of those kind of humanities courses, the liberal arts areas. Now, I went through UNM, and my major, predominantly science and math, engineering degree, was not exposed to much of that because it is more in the science area. But there's some other things that we'll talk about later when we talk about science. We're going to deal with science as well. So Marxism is an important worldview in the world, but also in the United States. You will encounter people that believe in the new age. That is a whole area of thinking that is radically different from a biblical worldview. We'll touch on it. It's becoming more and more the religion of the world, the new age movement. And it's certainly prominent in the country in which we live in. And there's a lot we could talk about on it. There is what's called postmodernism. It's a new philosophical approach that is beginning to dominate our culture, if it doesn't already. We'll want to understand a little bit about it, so we'll touch on some of these. 
We're supposedly living in a postmodern era. And by the way, postmodernism has infiltrated some churches. So you have to be, be careful in terms of theology. Just because a church says they believe in the Bible, sometimes it's interpreted from a postmodern perspective. Very careful here. Islam is growing. And it is beginning to dominate Europe. And if trends continue in the United States, we will follow. It is the fastest growing religion in the world. Now, some of the reasons for it is because they conquer people and, and insist that you convert to Islam. This is going to be a growing area, so it's good to have a little understanding. This in itself is a worldview. And it's, it's a different worldview than what we believe in. And even within the church, I've already hinted at it, the church is largely departed from a literal approach in terms of interpretation, and to the extent of that departure, the church has apostatized. I believe that the church, in reality, is today a small remnant. Only real Bible-teaching churches, I think, will be the ones that probably will be persecuted in the future, and this number will be smaller and smaller. The apostasy in the church is growing. So hopefully, by understanding what's going on in the culture in which we live in, that's the purpose of this course, we can better help people that are beginning to be entrapped by these different ideas, and we can help them sort out their thinking to be able to understand, and sometimes people don't understand Christianity, because their eyes are looking through a different lens, and that lens is a little little bit cloudy because of the thinking that they've been trained in, either in schools or as a result of just the culture, cultural influence in all of these other areas. So these are just some of the major examples of the culture in which we live in and what we want to combat in uh, the course that we're taking here. Now... We've been noticing a decline in our country, partly as a result of these attacks on truth, but there have also been, there's been a shift politically, judicially, and socially that has been going on for some time now in our culture, such that we are where we are today as a result of some of those things. Ideas have consequences. Bad ideas have bad consequences, and what we are seeing in the culture are the result of some of those bad consequences. And just to illustrate that, the Supreme Court has gradually been drifting from not only its initial design by the Founding Fathers, been drifting away, but a whole worldview has been taking place within it that has shifted the emphasis and the ideas and the decisions that the Supreme Court has been making. Right now, we're on the edge of of basically, unless conservatives can change that direction, basically taking steps even further in decline than what we're experiencing here and now. There have been three major Supreme Court decisions. The results of them we can see today. And let me just real quickly go over each of them. In 1962, there was a decision, the case is called Ingalls versus Vitale. And in that decision, 
That was the decision that the Supreme Court said it was unconstitutional for young children to be able to pray in schools. It removed prayer from the schools, essentially. What followed with that are also precedents that kind of came from that, this whole concept of separation of church and state. So that idea began to come as a result of this first Supreme Court decision. And what was happening is a shift in terms of people's attitudes towards a biblical worldview, for one, Christianity in general, the Bible overall, and by the way, eventually, the removal of things like the Ten Commandments, the removal of uh, things like Christmas displays uh, in public buildings, the separation of church and state. And what the court did is essentially remove God from the culture, or at least attempted, or that was the result of it. And I think partly what we see in terms of the moral decline, spiritual decline, is partly as a result of decisions that were made by the Supreme Court that set these things in motion. Does that make sense? Another decision was made in 1973, and I believe today's the anniversary of Roe versus Wade. Is that true? Okay, today's the anniversary. This was a significant shift as well. And it was a shift in how do you interpret the Constitution? And if you're not familiar, Roe versus Wade basically uh, made abortion legal, legalized abortion. But in order to do that, there was a shift in terms of the mindset and the approach in terms of how do you interpret the Constitution? Do you interpret it? literally, or do you look, in other words, do you look for the intent of the framers of the Constitution? And what did they intend to communicate? Now, I made a big deal on this in the course that I taught last time, uh, the hermeneutics course. This is the same issue with dealing with the Bible. How do you interpret the Bible? Well, the fundamental hermeneutical or interpretive principle is you try to find out what did the original authors intend. Well, that traditionally has been the approach of the Supreme Court in terms of interpreting the Constitution and deciding what laws conform to the United States Constitution. Well, with Roe versus Wade, they introduced this idea that you take other things into account and you don't interpret it literally. In fact, it opens the door to inserting things that, the, in, that are not in the Constitution and in some cases, removing or minimizing things that are actually clearly spelled out in the Constitution. So it somehow found a privacy idea in terms of a woman has the right to privacy. That led to the idea that she can basically do what she wants to with her body, Roe versus Wade. And as a result of this, this has been a minimizing and an undermining of the whole idea of of life and the protection of life. And actually, the decision actually is contrary to the actual uh, Constitution. Constitution protects life in its design and intent. So this has cheapened life. So it's, it's made uh, this whole moral issue of life and death in terms of human beings very nebulous or less valuable. 
In fact, a fetus is less valuable than the egg of a bald eagle. So the cheapening of, of life. And as a result, it's led to other things as well. Well, that was a shift in thinking. Shift in worldviews. Shift in approaches. More recently, 2003, there was a another decision, Lawrence and Gardner versus the state of Texas. And in that, the essence of that, that struck down all anti-sodomy laws. So it opened the door to what we're seeing now, a total redefinition of marriage itself. This is a foundational idea that has undergirded not only our culture, but the cultures of the world, and today that has been almost totally undermined. There's consequences to these things. And we're in the process of seeing the whole idea of marriage basically being totally undermined. And our culture has moved from viewing this whole area, the whole sexual area, and the sin aspects of it, moving from viewing those things as sinful as today, things that are acceptable. And in fact, what is not acceptable is anyone that is not tolerant of these new ideas. So it is totally undermining morality, spirituality, and all the things related to to Scripture. Now, I'm not saying that these are necessarily direct causes, but they open doors to other things that are having their impact in the culture in which we live in, such that we find ourselves in a very bad situation, I think, not only as a country, but in terms of individuals, it has an impact on people's thinking, and people, their consciences actually are being seared and makes it harder for the sharing of the gospel. What we are observing is what uh, Psalm 11.3 talks about there, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? In other words, we are seeing the foundations of a culture being undermined and destroyed. And we want to trace not only what's going on, where it comes from, and I'm just giving you some hints here, but this is a question that the foundations are destroyed, and I think today our situation is such that many of the foundations of this country, many of the foundations relating even to the church, and I just mentioned as the illustration, the foundations of the basic building blocks of culture, the family, they are either in the process of being destroyed or in some cases already destroyed. What can the righteous do? That's what this course is all about. What are some of the things that we can do? And I think it starts with our understanding and the better that we have a grasp of not only the situation we find ourselves in, but what is the solution? The solution is, I believe, rebuilding these foundations, first of all, by understanding what those foundations are, where they come from, and we're going to go through many foundations that Scripture lays for us in all of these areas that we've talked about, and more. So, if the foundations are destroyed, Psalm 11.3, what can the righteous do? We want to be uh, proactive, we want to be able to have an influence on the culture in which we live in. So, basically the goal of this whole course is a radical transformation of our thinking, or basically what the Bible describes in Ephesians 4, the renewing of our minds. And this is an ongoing thing. In other words, we, we continually 
study in order to continually renew our minds because we are continually bombarded with false ideas, false worldviews, false concepts. And if we're not aware of them, we somewhat unsuspectingly buy into them and are influenced by them, and they have an impact on us, and eventually they have an impact on the culture. So we want to do the reverse. We want to radically transform our thinking if we're unfamiliar with some of these things, but also renew our minds on an ongoing basis. And this course will be foundational in doing that so that the rest of your life you can spend continually kind of adding and continually renewing our, our thinking and our minds. That verse Psalm 11.3? Oh, 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 Ephesians. Ephesians 4.23, I believe. Is that right? Yep. Ephesians 4.23. It's in the context of dealing with Christians that need to put on the new self, or first of all, you got to take off the old and put on the new. And part of that process is the renewing of our minds. In fact, that's the beginning. This is what Francis Schaeffer says, and this is what we will try to do also in this class. He says the following, Christianity is not a series of truths in the plural. That's key there. What's gone on in our culture is our culture has separated out. In fact, this is the theme of Nancy's book you were talking about, Nancy Percy. We have kind of compartmentalized truth, at least into two categories she she identifies very clearly, and that's separating out. That's, this is what uh, uh, Schaefer is talking about. Christianity is not a series of truths in the plural. In other words, isolated truths in the plural, but rather truth spelled with a capital T, truth about total reality. And what he's arguing against, and what Percy argues against in her book, is that what our culture has done, it has separated out what we would call spiritual, biblical, or if you want to use the word religious truth, and segregated it out from the culture and says, well, that is more in the area of opinion. That deals with values, in other words, things that you consider valuable, but it's not really objective truth. So you can put your Bible truths, your religious truths in this box, but when it comes to mathematics, when it comes to to science, when it comes to physics, that's a separate thing. That is objective truth. This other is values. This is opinion. This is your... It's almost like I prefer blue. It's almost, this is what I prefer. I I prefer to believe in Jesus Christ. He is not real necessarily, but I prefer to believe in him. But if I really want to understand truth, I've got to go into the sciences. And what Francis Schaeffer is saying, no. Christianity is a total, capital T, truth about total reality. In other words, it has impact in every area. And I'm going to show you how we, we do that in terms of every area. That's why... I title it The Foundation of All Things. One of the first things we're going to deal with is language. The Bible is a biblical foundation for language. We're going to talk about science. The Bible is a biblical foundation for science. We're going to deal with other areas as well. Marcy. So the culture does not believe 
absolute truth that you're at. The only absolute truth like science. And even even there, the culture would wobble. In other words, it does not believe in absolute truth at all. But particularly, those areas, those spiritual areas, those biblical areas particularly, it would separate them out. Okay? So let's read the rest of the quote. In other words, Christianity is about truth, about total reality. In other words, there's not an area that biblical truth does not touch on and lay a foundation to. He goes on, not just about religious things. Biblical Christianity is truth concerning total reality, says it twice. And the intellectual holding of that total truth then living in the light of that truth. In other words, what you believe is going to work itself out. That's why the the culture in which we live in, based on secular humanism, it lives out its idea concerning what is reality. And that's why, when you think of truth as being relative, homosexuality is okay, killing babies in the womb is okay, in some situations, they would say, for me it may be okay, maybe it's wrong for you, but, you know, it's this relative idea here. Francis Schaeffer says, no, there's a total reality that kind of brings all these things together, and we need to begin to think in terms of biblical truth. That is the foundation, and that's what we want to do in this course, is lay that foundation. So I get a smaller <laughs> Our everyday life and instruction leaves areas in the Bible. It covers every yes, and it gives us guidance, and it sets sets everything, sets a framework for everything. That's why I call it biblical foundation for all things. And I think on one occasion I said uh, not some things, but all things. Yep. So we're going to look, and this is just an example of some things, important things. We'll be laying foundations for science. Very important area. And what we're going to do is we're going to lay a contrast. And I'm going to defend a biblical approach to science. And we're going to go against the current use of science to support another religious idea called naturalism. Naturalism is a element of a worldview. It's an element of secular humanism. And I'll give you some details on all this. That's a totally different approach. This approach is going to lead people's thinking in a certain direction in which those people that come from that approach are going to come to different conclusions concerning certain things than if you have a creationist view. These are in opposition. And that's why we start with Genesis 1-1, with creation. That's the beginning. That's the foundation. And it has a a direct impact on science. I'll try to show you that. And I'm going to give you a complete biblical foundation for science. In other words, how do you do good science? You can do good science. We're going to look at the area of history. In fact, uh, the major portion of the course is going to deal with uh, world history. I'm going to give you world history. There's a secular world history. There's a biblical history. If you go to UNM, you will not get a biblical history. You will get a secular history. How do you interpret? And I'm going to give you a foundation. In other words, how do you, how, how should you do history? How should you interpret history? Well, it starts with taking that biblical history and using it as a framework. And we'll do that. 
will run through the entire course doing this with major events of world history. I'll show you that. There's a philosophical approach of secularism, secular humanism, that actually is contrary to biblical history. And we'll talk about that. And we'll give you a defense as well. A very important area is just, what is man like? What is mankind like? In general, the the secular viewpoint is that man is good, and the evil that you see in man is a result of the environment that he lives in. So if you can correct the environment in which he lives in, then the byproduct of that should be it will improve the goodness of man. Well, the Bible speaks of man as being depraved. That's why you see evil. And we're going to talk about the whole issue of evil. Where does evil come from? The biblical perspective is radically different from any other worldview, including Islam and all religions that are non-biblical religions. We'll talk about that. In fact, I'll give you that foundation as well. So what is, this is fundamental. This affects politics. This affects laws. This affects culture. In other words, people's view of what mankind is like affects all of these areas. So this is fundamental. So we have to have a biblical viewpoint of who man is, who we are. Language. I told you I'm going to deal with that real early. We'll talk about that. Where does language come from? What is the origin? Does it come from man's mind? That's the secular viewpoint. Where does language come from? Or... Does it come from God's mind? Genesis 1 answers that question right off the bat. We see the origin of language. We see the origin of all things. What about philosophy? A leading element of philosophy today is called rationalism. That's one of the elements of secular humanism. This is antagonistic even within denominations, even within some churches. Some churches have been affected by a rationalistic approach. In in fact, in history, this is the explanation why we have liberal denominations. Because this is prominent in liberal denominations. Rationalism instead of a dependence on revelation. Very important. Very important. The biblical worldview depends on revelation. So we'll go heavy into that. Even government. What's the basis of government? Well, in general, the basis of government in the secular view is human. In other words, whatever man comes up with. And there's different views. This is where you get Marxism. This is where you get all these other different isms. But there is a biblical and there's an ideal government that uh, the Bible speaks of. We're going to spend a lot of time looking at this because we have an example of it. It's flawed in the extent that man is flawed, but it also speaks of a future government that, in fact, if you remove sin, we have the basis for an ideal future government. This is where world history is headed. Can't wait. So government, uh, there's foundations that we'll talk about it. Theology, there's obviously false doctrine, which is present in a lot of denominations, a lot of churches. And then the alternative to that is, what is a a proper approach to Scripture and interpreting Scripture? What is true orthodoxy? What is false in terms of uh, interpreting Scripture? And related to that, the Bible. There's an approach to interpreting the Bible. We could call that eisegesis in contrast to what we 
call exegesis. One is making the Bible say what you want it to say. That's reading into the Bible. That's eisegesis. As opposed, and we'll constantly be doing this as we look at each of the events, we'll attempt to let the writer explain what he intended to communicate. That's exegesis. And by the way, when you read your Bible, our natural tendency, the tendency of the sin nature, is to make the Bible say what we want it to say. That's that's just our natural bent. That's our inclination. So if we understand what we are all about, mankind, and how we generally approach Scripture, then we can be on guard and try to avoid those pitfalls. And by the way, this is one of the major problems within the church, is what does this passage say? It's always a debate as to whether we're reading things into the text rather than trying to figure out what the author intended to write. That's just some of the major areas. We're going to talk about economics. We're going to talk about social structures. How do you structure a society, a culture? The Bible gives us all that. We have foundations for all of that. Even justice. This is a big word today. Social justice. Well, what is real? What is biblical social justice? What does the Bible say? It's totally different from the secular viewpoint. Psychology. You could formulate a biblical psychology, which is contrary to secular, obviously. Education, social life, the list goes on. Come up with a long list there. These are just examples of some of the major areas that we'll try to lay foundations for. And when we do this, this will help us to be able to not only understand the culture in which we live in, but help others to be able to sort out. And sometimes we have to sort these things out in order to open the door for the gospel so that people can realize, I've been thinking totally wrong for all of these years. Now I need to refocus and think in terms of what reality is all about. So that's what we will attempt to do. So that's a little bit of the introduction. And also part of our introduction is how are we going to attempt to do this? What's our approach? Well, what is our approach? I've already hinted at it at the beginning here. What we will do is, first of all, we will take major events of the Old Testament, since this is the Old Testament portion, those major events will be the foundation for world history. And in reality, this is what world history is all about. Because it's telling us what God is doing in terms of world history. Everything else is secondary in terms of world history. Now, the Bible doesn't deal with the details of Chinese history and all these others, but all of these others in some way fit into this framework of world history, and we're going to look at the inspired version of world history. You may not have even thought of that. There is an inspired version of world history, and it's not found in the text that you will take at any university. In fact, not today, but... Part of the, our introduction, I'm going to talk, I'm going to contrast a little bit of that just to start off. So we will look at the major events of the Old Testament, and I'm going to try and demonstrate these are foundational to everything else that God is doing 
And we're going to look at world history, not like the text that you have in a college. We're going to look from eternity, and we'll hint at eternity past, we'll hint at eternity future. In other words, words words that all heading. The Bible gives us all that. We basically have a summary of inspired world history. And when we get to that point, I will challenge you, so I might as well just challenge you up front. These events that we look at, I challenge you to, to give me an argument against them being basically the foundation to world history. That these are the most important events of world history. And I'll challenge you to, to refute that. So we're going to look, and we'll spend some time looking at events. I'm going to give you ten Old Testament events. These are the foundation of all world history. Secondly, we will do Bible exposition of the major passages that deal with those events. And in some cases, this will be very detailed, and in other cases, we'll have to summarize. But basically, what I'll do is give you an exposition of these events. In other words, what does the biblical text say about these events? So it'll be somewhat in-depth. Uh, those ten events, or in some cases, they're series events that we can cluster together. Some of them you can view as single events, and others are clusters of events. So we'll spend some time expounding these individual passages. Thirdly, we will draw the theological implications, which are far-reaching. Those implications form our biblical worldview. And these are powerful. They affect the way we live. They affect everything. And we'll draw those implications out. And they will especially impact our our thinking, the renewing of our mind. And what we were, are going to do is we will do apologetics, and we will show what the world believes in contrast to what we were, we are focusing in on in terms of these major events. So we will defend, for example, their historicity. And it's not a coincidence that virtually all of these events that we, we will look at are under attack by secular humanism and some of the other worldviews as well. Does secular humanism believe in a creation? No. Yep, evolution, basically. So we will defend the idea of God as creator and the biblical text. You might even look at things like the kingdom in terms of Israel in the Old Testament. There are so many confusing ideas there that we'll have to have very clear thinking in contrast to what generally even the church believes. So we're going to look at these events and try to defend them, giving sound reasons, because remember, we're looking at total truth. We're looking at things from a biblical perspective, and that's how the Bible deals with things. We're not separating these out as, oh, that's nice that you can believe those fairy tales. Fairy tales of a flood, for example. That's a huge event, if in fact it's real. And we're going to defend the historicity of the Genesis flood. So we will do a little bit of apologetics. So we'll combine world history, Bible exposition, the theological implications, and we will defend them. Apologetics. Let's take a look at this word, apologetics, and then we'll take a break. The Greek word, and probably none of you, have you had any 
Green? No. Okay. You've had tiny bits. Okay. <laughs> Don't worry about it. <laughs> well, the Greek word for apologetics, in fact, we get the word apologetics from apologia, apologia, and as you can tell, it almost sounds like apologetics. That's where we get the word apologetics. And the essence of the meaning of the word, and it occurs in the Bible, so we get this idea of apologetics from the Bible itself. This is a whole area of study. In fact, you can take several courses. I teach two courses of apologetics. I teach an introduction to apologetics. This kind of looks at a defense of the faith in general, and the Greek word here is a defense or a reason for doing or believing something. And when we speak of the Bible and apologetics, we're talking about defending what the Bible teaches, defending the Bible itself, defending God. There's all these different areas of defense. The second course I teach, it's called scientific apologetics, where I basically focus on a defense of a biblical view of science in uh, particular areas that are under attack in the culture in which we live in. So that's kind of a specialized course. But uh, the word apologia, in general, is just a defense of anything, a defense or a reason for doing or believing something. So when we speak of apologetics in relationship to the Bible, we're talking about defending the Bible. In the Bible, it's used in at least three different ways. And if we had time, we could look up some of these passages, I'll give you a few of them. But it is used in terms of a legal defense before the authorities. It could be in a court of law, but it's like a legal defense. In fact, apologia is a legal term. In other words, a give a defense. And in this case, the first use is a legal defense. And if you want some some passages in uh, Acts chapter 22, verse 1. The word apologia occurs. And in that context, Paul is giving a defense of his, basically, Christianity. And it's before uh, a Jewish crowd. And the word apologia is used in that context. Later on in Acts chapter 24, verse 10, the word occurs there. And in that context... He's defending what he does in terms of his evangelism before Felix, the governor. So he's giving a legal defense before the authorities. There are some usages of the word where you defend one's character. In other words, if your character is under attack, uh, you can uh, give a defense. And this is in general... Sometimes that defense can be a legal defense as well, but can be in general. And I didn't jot down a verse for that one, but there's some... Um, even Jesus, I think, gave a defense of his character, of who he is. Matthew chapter 12, before Jewish people. Wasn't in a legal context, but Jesus basically defending that he does performs miracles, not by the power of Beelzebub. Remember Matthew chapter 12, that passage there? That's defending his character. Thirdly, a defense of Christianity itself. Those are the ways that apologia, both the verb, this is a noun form, but there's a verb form that goes along with it. And 
Nope, it's not a. It's not. We get the word apologize, but that's not. It's a different idea. Defense of Christianity. Some examples of it. Paul defending the gospel, Philippians 1.7, where the word apologia occurs. And in verse 16 as well, Peter, in 1 Peter 2.15, to some extent is defending some aspect of Christianity in that passage as well. Now, some other passages where the word is not used, but we're encouraged, essentially, to defend the faith, you might jot down 2 Corinthians 10.5, where in that passage it says, we are destroying speculations. In other words, Paul is saying, we apostles are destroying worldviews. We're trying to remove them. We're trying to explain where they come from and how to combat them because they're false ideas. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. Things that are contrary to the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's what we want to do in this course. Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's apologetics. The word is not used in that context, but that's the idea is dealing with false ideas, which are speculations, men's ideas. They're not reality. And they have elements of truth, but in general they're distortions. Because of depravity. Because of depravity, exactly. Another passage, Colossians 4, 6, an exhortation to believers, let your speech always be with grace. In other words, if we're defending the faith to an unbeliever or somebody that's contrary... Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. In other words, we are to respond to people in the culture in which we live in, our neighbors, our friends, or even sometimes our family. Be able to give an answer to them. In fact, that's First Peter 3.15. Be able to give an answer to them. First Peter 3.15, sanctification. Christ as Lord in your heart. In other words, incorporate Christ in your heart. That's renewing your mind concerning everything Jesus taught. That's what it means to sanctify Christ. Make him prominent. Make him the focal point of everything. I'm going to see another passage later on encouraging us along those lines. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense. Now there's the word, apologia. Being ready to make a apologia to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. That's what we want to do. That's why we're doing we're doing in this course. To give you a foundation that you can now take and help other people. Clear their thinking. Give a defense. In other words, this is the reason... I believe in Jesus Christ. This is the hope that I have, and I want to share this gospel with you, but you have these obstacles, so I want to give you the reason for that hope so that you can trust in Jesus Christ and your mind can be illumined as well. So those are some of the scriptures relating to apologetics, and basically I give you all of this in order to kind of set kind of the tone of where we're, we're heading with the rest of this course. Why don't we take a break at this point? When we come back, we'll look at the basis.
for this approach.